are back. As promised in the first segment, we were going to delve into the presidential poll from the Sacramento Bee last Sunday. This was by Gene Weingarten of the Washington Post. I think this is uh, worth getting into a bit. According to a recent survey, noted Mr. Weingarten, 17% of the American public strongly approves of the job that George W. Bush is doing. Not just approves, but strongly approves. After probing the question of how it is these people make their judgments, noting then that in the interest of fair and responsible journalism and without any preconceived biases, I've created a poll to scientifically analyze this group of Americans. Please do not answer the questions below unless you strongly approve of the job President Bush is doing. Question one, how do you think the war in Iraq is going? A, splendidly. B, very well indeed. C, quite nicely, thank you. Or D, pretty darned okay. Question two, how would you rate the president's handling of Hurricane Katrina? A, masterful. B, super. C, four stars. Or D, very, very good. Question three, how do you pronounce America? A, Merka. B, other. Question four, what is your primary source of news? A, cow behavior, caterpillar activity, tree moss changes, etc. B, what my common law spouse heard at bingo. C, homeland security, color alert charts. Or D, the Bible. And final question for those who strongly approve of the job President Bush is doing. What is the biggest problem facing America today? A, People criticizing President Bush. B. Discrimination against shotgun enthusiasts. C. Sissies. Or D. The Jews. Uh, we got a kick on last week's show out of noting that uh, the bites column in the Sacramento News and Review agreed with us that the Kevin Federline ad in the Super Bowl was pretty funny. And uh, we thought they were pretty on the money with uh, last week's column, which uh, coined a new word for use in the Urban Dictionary. The word was foxaganda, defined as Bush administration propaganda masquerading as news, which can appear on Fox News or any other corporate media along with so-called public channels like NPR and PBS. A thanks went out to the Sacramento News Review's own Jackson Griffith for the coinage. Foxaganda. Not bad. In the same column, Bites also noted uh, the Monday news story, previous Monday news story from the Times, Iranians arming Iraqi militias, question mark, which was reprinted by the Sacramento Bee. Um, according to that article... Iranians have supplied the explosive to Iraq Shia militants that so far have accounted for the deaths of 171 American soldiers. Well, never mind that Iraq Sunni militants have killed thousands of U.S. troops with explosives stolen from improperly guarded ammo depots after the successful American invasion. And uh, in a related story which may uh, dismay our Humvee driving governor... It was noted that the Marines in Iraq do not want more Humvees. The U.S. Army and Marine Corps are petitioning Congress for extra money for mine-resistant ambush-protected vehicles, called MRAPs, at about $1 million per pop. 
The armored Humvee costs $150,000. The Marines wanted to replace all the Humvees in Iraq because of their high death toll. Almost two-thirds of the 700 Marines who have died in Iraq were killed in Humvees. I think the question we taxpayers need to ask is, how is it you can spend $150,000 for a vehicle and have it be a danger to the troops? Apparently, Congress has already funded 1,049 of these MRAPs in the 2007 budget. At a million dollars a pop, that's a billion dollars worth of vehicles. I mean, we're not quibbling over the fact that you want to have proper vehicles that can keep our our people safe, but a million dollars a pop? (sighs) Meanwhile, you know, folks are are raising, uh, raising cane over Nancy Pelosi wanting to be able to take a jet all the way home to California. Admittedly, that's probably not going to come really cheap, but that's, you know, that, that's not going to cost a billion dollars worth of flights to get uh, the number three person in, uh, in Washington um, home to visit her constituents in San Francisco. How about this item on our financial priorities? Bush opposes redesign of money for the blind. According to the AP, redesigning paper money to make it easier for the blind would be too expensive and cause undue hardship on the vending machine industry, the Bush administration is arguing in court. Government lawyers filing an appellate brief last Thursday argued that blind people could try portable money readers or use credit cards. A district court judge in Washington had, had ruled last November 28 that the government must devise ways for the blind to recognize paper money of different values. He said the United States was the only nation that printed bills in all denominations in the same size and color. Apparently, the vending machine industry has uh, quite a lot of clout, which I'm sure is why the Treasury has not withdrawn the dollar bill from circulation. It should have been done years ago. They produced yet another in a series of $1 coins. Until they take the $1 bill out of circulation, the coins are not going to be a success. Imagine what you could do with the $2 billion a week we're spending in Iraq. Uh, How about this item? Intelligence report from Parade. In the wake of the Indian Ocean tsunami, Christmas 2004, the U.S. government uh, pledged $405 million to Indonesia to help them rebuild. The U.S. has sent just $102.6 million of that total. You can start tallying up the amount of uh, good that could be done by using the funds that are being devoted to the quagmire that is Iraq into more productive enterprises, well, you know, it, it, it'd be pretty mind-boggling. We're really keen to talk about this item from the uh, American Association for the Advancement of Science uh, meeting in San Francisco. Rusty Schweikert and others are proposing that we do something about uh, the asteroid Apophis. Well, uh, that asteroid and others are among the near-Earth objects which potentially could hit the Earth with uh, something like 80,000 times the energy of a Hiroshima bomb. Rusty Schweikert was an Apollo uh, astronaut, and he's uh, got a plan. Well, there are several plans to put devices out there that could slowly, uh, slowly pull an asteroid off of a collision course with Earth. All these ideas are going to be pretty expensive and they're going to involve new technology, but the consequences of not doing it uh, could be pretty, pretty grim. Uh, it isn't a matter of if these things are going to hit, it's a matter of when. The last uh, severe asteroid hit uh, that we know about was uh, 99 years ago in Siberia, the Tungusta event. 
An asteroid apparently struck the Earth and exploded in the air with the force of a 10-megaton nuclear bomb. I think we need to get Rusty Schweikert on this program to talk about this. This is a long-range plan. Uh, people uh, don't seem to take it very seriously, but this would be a very good use of, uh, of funds that go to high-tech anyway. Unfortunately, nowadays they go to high-tech objects that, uh, that blow things up and, and kill people. This would be more productive. We, we are encouraged by the tone of the news coverage of late. It appears that uh, every cockamamie uh, uh, bit of propaganda that was disseminated by this administration and the ramp up to war was basically presented unchallenged by most of the mainstream media. But these days, even people like The Economist, January 13th issue, have headlines like this. George Bush announces one more push for, quote, victory, unquote. Is he just reinforcing failure, question mark? In an excellent article, January 18th of this year, uh, done by Mark Seibel for the McClatchy Washington Bureau about the war in Iraq, the B had the headline, The War in Iraq According to Bush, with the subtitle, Is the President Giving an Accurate Account of Events? Said Mark Seibel with refreshing candor, President Bush and his aides, explaining their reasons for sending more U.S. troops to Iraq, are offering an incomplete, oversimplified, and possibly untrue version of events there that raises new questions about the accuracy of the administration's statements on Iraq. And I don't think you can state it any more clearly than that. We note uh, that the outgoing uh, general in charge of Iraq, George Casey, told a Senate hearing a couple weeks back that an official cost estimate of the new deployment, the surge, came in dramatically higher than the White House had previously said. And George Bush's nominee to head the U.S. Central Command, Navy Admiral William Fallon, told his Senate confirmation hearing recently that the time for finding solutions in Iraq is running out. What we've been doing has not been working, he said. We've got to be doing, it seems to me, something different. As the U.K. prepares to take out something like 1,600 troops out of Iraq, the White House is saying, well, it just shows that what we're doing over there is succeeding. The White House is also leaking stories about its lack of confidence in Iraqi Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki. The idea being, of course, that, well, those people over there, they're just not ready for what we're trying to do for them. Senator John McCain is trying to scapegoat uh, Donald Rumsfeld. But, you know, Rumsfeld works for his boss, the thinker-upper. Of course, we always did like the joke uh, that came about in the wake of of Dick Cheney's heart palpitations. Someone pointed out, hey, you know, if something happens to Cheney, Bush could become president. But we'll return to that topic in just a minute. I did want to quote from Max Boot, writing in the Los Angeles Times about what's happening over in Iraq. Said Max Boot, if we lose the war in Iraq, hardcore conservatives know whom to blame. The fault well lies squarely with the press, or as the bloggers call it, the MSM, mainstream media, which they accuse of focusing too much attention on casualties and chaos. It's true there has been some biased, slipshod news coverage out of Iraq, but the best of the journalists there have braved death every day to provide the American people with a clear-eyed and sobering view of the conditions on the ground. When the official story was that the war was already won, or that the insurgency was merely a temporary nuisance, reporters there portrayed a much bleaker situation. It was the press, and not President Bush or his generals, that informed us that the insurgency was growing. 
It was the press that first warned that the Sunni-Shiite schism was turning into a civil war. Of course, blaming the messenger for the current debacle in Iraq takes the heat off those who deserve it, from Bush to former Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld to military leaders. Perhaps that's the point. And speaking of Dick Cheney and uh, the Valerie Plame case, which we're very keen to see what will develop uh, out of that jury decision, we would in the meantime uh, unhesitatingly refer you to the article by Catherine Olmsted, which was printed in the forum section of Sunday's Sacramento Bee. Catherine Olmsted is a professor of history here at the University of California, Davis. Her 1996 book, Challenging the Secret Government, the Post-Watergate Investigations of the CIA and FBI, examined the fights over secrecy and power in the Ford administration. Wrote Dr. Olmsted, From the witnesses at the I. Lewis Scooter Libby trial, we've learned that Vice President Dick Cheney was deeply involved in the campaign to discredit former Ambassador Joseph Wilson, who had publicly refuted the Bush administration's contention that Saddam Hussein was trying to buy processed uranium from Niger. Cheney came up with a list of talking points for his aides. He wrote out answers to possible questions from reporters. He authorized the leak of top-secret documents to support his case. The vice president's role in the Wilson saga is not surprising to those who have examined his early career. Cheney has consistently shown his determination to use government secrets, or more specifically, his control over government secrets, as a means to attack his political enemies. Cheney's notes and memos from the 1970s, which survive in the files of the Gerald R. Ford Library in Michigan, demonstrate his longtime hostility to reporters and members of Congress who dared to challenge presidential authority. Dr. Olmsted goes on to describe how various reporters in the early 1970s had uh, blown the whistle on some uh, government activities and how then-presidential aide Richard Cheney drafted some notes outlining possible responses. Dr. Olmsted discovered these notes when researching uh, her dissertation at the Gerald R. Ford Library in 1990. Cheney's notes show how he wanted to go after Senator Frank Church, a Democrat of Idaho, who was uh, following up on some of Hirsch's scoops with congressional inquiries. Regarding Hirsch, Cheney wanted to intimidate him to stop other reporters from writing similar stories. He listed several options for the president, including an FBI investigation of Hirsch, an investigation of the Times, an investigation of Hirsch's sources, obtaining a search warrant to, quote, go after Hirsch and remaining materials, unquote, and seeking criminal indictments of one or more parties based on information now at hand. Ford's attorney general, former law professor Edward Levi, argued strongly against legal actions. But, Dr. Olmsted noted, Cheney and his boss, Chief of Staff Donald Rumsfeld, continued trying to punish those whom they felt exposed national secrets. When, in December of 1975, terrorists in Greece assassinated the CIA station chief in Athens, Richard Welch, this was after a left-wing magazine had identified him as being CIA, the Ford administration, i.e. Rumsfeld and Cheney, used the Welch murder to equate congressional Democrats with anti-CIA extremists who published his name. Welch's murder eventually helped lead to a law against divulging the identities of CIA agents, agents like Joseph Wilson's wife, Valerie Plame. In other words, 
writes Dr. Olmsted. The post-Watergate hysteria over national security leaks, a hysteria inflamed by Ford aides like Dick Cheney, set the stage for the current trial of Cheney's top aide. The article concludes noting that testimony at Libby's trial suggests that Cheney's perception of the propriety of leaking the names of CIA agents has changed. It now appears that it's acceptable if the leaker is in the White House and the husband of the named operative is a critic of the administration. Fine article by Dr. Olmsted. We recommend that you uh, pull it up uh, on the internet and read it in its entirety. Again, that was in uh, Sunday's Sacramento Bee. Speaking of the Bee and columnists, probably the person we are least jealous of on this program is Rick Cushman, the TV columnist. When we consider the kind of things that Mr. Cushman has to watch to do his job, well, I'd rather have the flu. Well, I'm exaggerating slightly. I'd rather have a cold. I wouldn't want that real, you know, body achy kind of flu. But once in a while, there is something really good on television, and we want to thank Rick Cushman for pointing that out to us. Wrote Rick, let's hear it for Frontline, the daring, unflinching, always thorough news series on PBS. On Tuesday, Frontline aired the second of a four-part series called News Wars. The program looks at the growing pressures for profits, just as most news organizations are losing ground to all forms of technology. In this series, Frontline and and reporter Lowell Bergman trace a handful of recent battles between the press and Bush administration to look at the notions of leaks and protecting anonymous sources. A great deal of attention is focused on the case of Valerie Plame. Wrote uh, Rick Cushman, the series looks at attacks against the press's reporting abilities going back to the Nixon administration, and it says that today the Bush administration has little loyalty to the notion of an open government, and Bush's people have been effective at harassing the press because of the economic vulnerability of all media these days. There was a curious article in the B looking back at uh, the newspaper back in the 1920s, standing up to advertisers and the Ku Klux Klan. Article by Steve Wigand, Bee staff writer, noted that um, that when the Bee published photos of a lynching that had taken place in Sonoma County, it took a lot of heat from some of its advertisers, but uh, took the attitude that, well, they, speaking of the advertisers, know perfectly well through long years of experience that their firm would be told that the news business was none of its business. Anyway, we recommend you read this article as well. Uh, It was fascinating to see how the Ku Klux Klan... uh, was making inroads in Sacramento here in 1922, and under the uh, the heat uh, of a lot of newspaper attention, uh, it, it sort of folded up its tent and went away. By a lot of people in the media showing some courage and standing up to some bad guys, uh, they were defeated. That's still an inspiring story 85 years later. Let's, uh, let's take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Radio Parallax. 